0: Welcome to the Hillside Community Church podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Well, good morning. It is great to see you. Um, very, very, very happy to be here this morning. Um, it's incredible that it's been almost four weeks. Uh, Since I've been in this building, went to India uh, and then had a catastrophe and survived in that. So are you ready to get back into Hebrews? All right, that's great. So we continue in our series, Life in the Big City, Uh, and in case you're just joining us, we're looking at the end of Hebrews which has this incredible imagery of a city. And let me remind you of what it says about us. At the end of chapter 12, he says, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. So in a sense, we've already arrived at that city. Uh, But then he says, in chapter 13, this is where the connection comes, We have no lasting city here. Uh, We seek the city that is to come. And so there's this sort of paradoxical, we have, in one sense, we've arrived. And in the other sense, we are seeking this city. So what he means by that is, in coming to Christ, you arrive in what we would say, you've become full-fledged citizens of God's new society. And so we live here as if we're a foreigner and stranger in this place. So we live by faith until we actually arrive there. So in one sense, we're already there. In other words, all the benefits of citizenship are ours. We are to live as as citizens of that city. But we're not there yet. So we live in this earthly city, and we live with radically different values than this city. Uh, we are countercultural. Because at the center of the city, of this imagery, Hebrews has told us, there's God who is this consuming fire, He is this blazing furnace of holiness. A presence we could not possibly survive without grace. We could never come into his presence and survive it, experience it, be in it without his grace. So that fire of holiness either disintegrates you or it purifies you. That's what we've learned and as a result, chapter 12 and verse 28, it's all by way of summary here. This is how we are to live as citizens. It tells you what it, what it means to have to life in the big city. The big city being the eternal one. Since we are receiving this unshakable kingdom, he says at the end of 12, we, we live in gratitude. And we offer ourselves in a way that is pleasing to God. So, pleasing God. So you say, what do you mean by life in the big city? You experience God as this, uh, as holy, and you seek to please him. That's what it is. Life in the big city is about being grateful for the fact that you can survive and experience God's presence without being disintegrated. And then you seek to please him with your life. That's life in the big city here. And you can't do this alone. Okay, the imagery of city suggests community. Can't be a city alone. And so we have kind of created this little image here to help us connect chapter 12 and chapter 13. The end of 12, we learn God is a consuming fire. And then here we learn that uh, that, that he has brought us into community. That's the first thing in chapter 13. That we have been brought into a community. So what we learned is a couple of little things. You can't please God unless you're in... Whatever it means to please this holy God. Can't do it unless you're in community. You gotta be in a sort of a deep, thick, rich kind of community. Uh because you can't make it to the city without it. In other words, the people around you that are in this this community provide things for you that you can't you that you you won't be able to make it to the city. Your faith won't survive it. We said your faith is vulnerable. It needs other people around it supporting it. That's what we provide each other as a community. So we said you have to treat community like you do your faith. Never let it go. That's the message of Hebrews. Don't let go of your faith. And equal to that is don't, don't abandon the community. Because it's equal to abandoning faith. Uh, which means that I can't just, it can't ever just, my faith can't ever just be about me. It's extremely dangerous to be out there on your own You'll start thinking weird things and doing weird things. You'll start creating a relationship with God that's very unhealthy. The community keeps you safe from that kind of thinking. It keeps you thinking like a citizen of heaven as opposed to getting sucked into the culture, which is so overwhelming that it slowly but surely changes your mind and thinking on things. Important things. So selfishness obviously contradicts community life. So here's maybe a a, a better way to say it. God's fiery holiness fuels the community. As I get closer to community, I get closer to that flame. That's purifying. We help purify each other. On my own, I'll have all kinds of secrets. In community, you get closer to that holy flame, and you can't ever forget that as we relate to one another. Um. So in community, say so how does this work? So in community, uh, there's other people's hands to serve and care for me when I need it, to direct me. Uh. Other people standing in community, I have feet that will stand by my side. I have legs that will uh, move toward me, you know, run to my aid if I need it. I have arms that will wrap me up when I'm in pain or hurting. Help me up when I've fallen. But I also have eyes. We see each other. I see you. You see me. There's an accountability in community. And if you're in it deep and it's thick and it's rich, you don't just feel a compulsion to be what God wants you to be, to please him because he's a fire. You feel it from the heat of the community. There's a heat we put off for one another. And that means we're a hot community. radically caring and serving and loving and forgiving and accountable to one another. The writer wants you to feel the heat of this community all the way through the chapter. You can't please him if you try to step outside of the community and try to fulfill. You're going to see how clear this is. You, You can't step outside the community and try to still feel that heat. You can't do it. You need to feel the heat, so you need to be in that. You think you 'd think the farther we get away from chapter 12 that you know we, that, that we wouldn 't feel the heat so much, and we 're going to see that that is not the case at all. Um, it actually gets hotter. So what do we mean by hotter? Um, well, because you start to see the picture that we become less less and less like culture and more driven to the community. There's a, there's a correlation to them. I get less and less like the culture around me and deeper entrenched in community and our connection to one another. We've got to see how we tease this out all the way through uh, this chapter. So as I move toward community, I move closer to the flame. That, cl- that flame should shape and transform me If I move away from the community, then I'm kind of looking for shade and for cover. Spiritually speaking, this is almost always the case. Back away from community, set yourself apart a little, and you can easily become selfish. In a community, it's hard to be selfish and not be pointed out. You know, Proverbs 18.1 says, he who separates himself seeks his own desire. That's always the case. And so being driven into community keeps me in that heat. So we need to feel the heat of the verse that we're in now, which we're in verse 4 of chapter 13. Um, And it's the topic is, marriage so remember what he said first let's go back and look at what he said first this is what verses 1 through 3 are and they really talk about community I want you to see them because they're important to what we're going to say he says brotherly love must continue there's our community statement that over sort of is an umbrella over the entire chapter do not neglect hospitality Uh, in other words entertain strangers some have entertained strangers without, or angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison. Uh, serve the ill-treated. So we, there's a kind of a, a, a real intimacy. And then there's an openness to strangers. We looked at that at length. And now he shifts, and this is, this is his next statement. Marriage must be honored among all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled, for God will judge sexually immoral people and adulterers. That's his next statement. There is no clearer, more concise statement on the subject of sexual purity um, than Hebrews thirteen four. I've taught this text before, but never in the context of the entire book of Hebrews. And so we need to see why he brings it up here. A high view of marriage is at the center of this sexual ethic. I read an interesting story. Uh, uh, it was just a—I thought it was an incredible parable, sort of, of where we've come on the subject of marriage in our in our culture. Um, which I, I'm not here to bash culture. Just we're talking about how to live in this city, and it's just contrast. We're supposed to be countercultural, and this verse is very countercultural. If you think being in community is countercultural to the individualistic society. Well, verse 4 is overwhelming. We have we have so run toward selfishness that we've completely devalued marriage. So I'm reading this book um, by Mark Buchanan this summer. And um, he tells the story of his, grandma, his, his wife's grandmother. Her name was Alice. She lived in British Columbia. Now this, this story hit me. I haven't been able to get it out of my head. I thought it was very, very interesting. So she lives in British Columbia, which I, I looked up it's in a little city called uh, Enderby. And anybody know what I'm talking about, with it, this area? Okay, pretty it's beautiful. I've I've looked it up. As a result of looking at this story, um, um, beautiful place, hemmed in on one side by the Pacific Ocean, granite glaciers of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, there's lakes. It's river. It's just beautiful. Um, it turns out that uh, the wilderness of this area was where gold prospectors went. And so he, def- he describes these men who devote, these people who devoted their lives to finding gold there. Uh, lived by the skin of their teeth to find it. Uh, and, his, and his wife's mother lived right here. In her middle years, in the late 20th century, uh, she saw all these people literally giving up everything in their lives to come to find this gold. And she always had this sort of negative taste in her mouth as she got older. She always talked about it, living in the area. She always talked about, and she, she put it like this. She thought it was sheer nonsense what these families went through to find gold. And she said she'd grown up, she had grown up, uh, he said, Uh, These grown men squandering everything, their homes, their farms, their families, their reputations, and flinging themselves headlong into reckless escapades, spending their years burrowing beneath uh, tree roots, grubbing through silt beds. One day, this is the story, one day she's got this garden in her backyard and there's this massive boulder that sort of sits around it. She wasn't always been too big to move. And so one day she decided that rather than continue to see it as an eyesore, that she would polish it. So she got some sandpaper out and she went out there and she began to sand it. It had gotten, of course, mineral deposits all over it and everything. She decided, well, I might as well make it beautiful. So she's sanding it. This is how he describes what happened. As she sanded, she noticed a thin sifting of gold gathering on the stone. She pressed the moist tip of her finger into it and pulled up a caking of gold dust. Her heart raced. She sanded faster, leaning her whole body into it. More gold appeared. Now she was scrubbing that rock as if it were a blood stain with strong sweeping strokes, bone and sinew bent to the, bent to the work. And gold accumulated rapidly. And she caught the virus in one swoop. She understood with perfect instinct what all this time she had dismissed as sheer nonsense. But now she had a two gold fever. And she was going to be rich. She stopped a moment to wipe her brow to rest a spell. And that's when she noticed that something was wrong with her wedding ring. The top side was normal but the underside part that nestled in the crease where her finger joined her palm wasn't. The band there was thin as a cheese slicer wire and thin as a filament. She had sanded her wedding ring clean off. All the gold was merely filings. It was the rem- remnants of her heirloom. It was her treasure reduced to dust. The way he tells the story in here is amazing. But he says, I've squandered treasure in pursuit of dust before. In pursuit of dust, our culture, I think, has done the same thing and devalued something that is not only valuable, but hallowed. Hallowed. Marriage itself. Now, our writer, which we have to look at, is a master, we said, of the Greek language. The way he, you can tell, it's easy to see. But um, I want to show you what he does with this verse. Because, you know, in these verses here, uh, we've got the imperative verb. Okay, you can see it in here. Let brother, brotherly love must continue. Uh, do not neglect is another imperative verb. Um, remember, you've got them. And then you get to this verse here, okay, which the subject seems to change wildly, but I'm going to show you it's not that wild. But I want you to see just from the text standpoint how the author focuses in on this subject. And he does it by, rather than using verbs, because there's literally, there's no verbs, except for the, uh, you get God's gonna judge. But in terms of the marriage piece, there's no peace. He uses this something called the definite noun and predicate adjective construction. And I just wanna show you what it looks like. Uh, definitely in English, I was tempted. Uh, but I'm not gonna do it. So you got a predicate adjective this is, this is literally how the Greek actually reads because there's, there's no other words in it. Honor marriage. This is how the verse reads. Honor marriage, the bed undefiled. That's the first statement. And so he uses a predicate adjective and a noun and then a noun and a predicate adjective. And he puts the two nouns together here on purpose. Now, in using this construction, what he does Is he takes this subject and he makes it as dense as he possibly can. In other words, he's gonna pack it like you would a snowball and make it as hard and powerful as a point as he can make it. Is what he's doing. And everything about sexual purity is gonna be packed right into this that you need to know. You don't need to know anything else about sexual purity except what he's packing into this. Statement. Now the effect of doing it like this, this first statement, you could see, you'd be far more memorable. You could memorize that a whole lot easier. Honor marriage, the bed undefiled. And by bed, the marriage bed. So it's memorable. But it's also a much tighter thought. Because you can see where you either... uh, you either honor this thing, do it right from the first right, or, or you wreck it. And so you just see just how precious he's trying to make this, his, his point. It's not only a tighter thought, and more, it's more potent. I love what one commentator said about this. He said, by using this construction, it allows him to speak with striking force. When, uh, when I was young, I think I was in high school when this happened, I was, uh, visited my dad on the set. He was driving the prop truck on a movie. And I can't remember the name of the movie. I'm sitting on the back of the truck with him and people are running all over the place. You know, We were filming at a home in South Florida. And so you, you, there's big cords running from tractor trailers into the house to bring electric and all this kind of stuff for the lighting and all this stuff. And there's just people everywhere doing stuff. And, and uh, I hadn't been to this set. I was visiting. I was just kind of on the set with him. And I happened to see a man. He was, uh, uh, I would say he was about my height, but he was about, I would say, maybe 70 years old. Uh, heavy set, uh, moved short legs, moved You know, sort of a gut with with like a half a cigar in his mouth running around. And my dad said, hey, you see that guy over there? I go, yeah, I see him. He goes, you know who that is? I go, no. Is he in this movie? And he goes, no, he's not in the movie. That's Tommy Monahan." I said, who's Tommy Monahan?" He said, he used to be Elvis Presley's bodyguard. I said, you're kidding. He says, seven, I said, what's he doing here? He said, he's a bodyguard. And I said, give me a break. <laughs> My dad says, let me tell you what happened. He tells me a story. He says, a bunch of, you know, when, when you got Tommy Monaghan around, he's a 10th degree black belt. So he said, they're standing around the, the back of his truck. And when you get a bunch of guys together and they're talking to a 10th degree black belt, do you know what they're like? They want to know secrets. And they want to know what to do if. Like you're standing around with a 10th degree black belt and you're having a conversation and you. you say, well, what would you do if I did that? What would you do? Oh, I got to be careful how I jerk around here. But what happens if, what happens if I did that? What would you do? You know, that's guys. And they're all looking at him going, Tommy, but I mean, what's a 10th degree black belt who's 70 years old going to do? And he looks at, he looks at the group and he says, I can put you on the ground with one finger. And so you know they're like, "Oh, we want to see it, but we don't want to be that guy." <laughs> but my father decides to be the guy. So they so they get up in the truck. Just imagine a you know like a Hertz just twenty-four foot truck, and inside the truck, there's, you know, you got all that footage in there. Standing at the front of the truck, and he says, "I'll put my finger one inch from your midsection." And I'm just going to do that. And I'll knock you down. And so my dad was like, all right, let's do it. He had no business doing this. (laughs) My dad said that I never saw his hand move. And all I saw was blue. And I woke up in the back of the truck. It was a one shot. That kind of potency. And everyone around him, you know, was... You know, laughing at them and everything because they had to get them up and get them oriented. <laughs> it was one shot, one inch away. That is the kind of shot this is. And, and more than that, there is a binding effect by putting the nouns together in the sentence, and they are together in the sentence. They are bound together. Marriage and sex go together. We'll tease that out in just a minute. I want to tease out something else first. In this text, remember he says, here's our community term. All of us all of us have to honor marriage that's the community heat we should all feel that heat as we gather together there is this public community piece to it so watch this because this is, I think this is powerful it was very powerful to me this among all this community public piece, so that none of us none of us can imagine that we can be something other than what this text is saying without the community saying something about it. So we're obligated to one another. There is this uh, sort of very very private piece, but the among all. is a very corporate piece. Honor marriage among all. So here's our corporate piece and here's the very private piece. So in community, I should feel the heat of moral purity. That, That how I treat this The community has something to say about it. While they don't ever go into that room, they're never behind the closed doors with me. This is very private. I have an obligation outside here to this community. Um, There's a second century document called the Epistle to Diognatius. Nobody knows who Diognatius is and nobody knows who wrote it. But it's so powerful because it's an explanation of Christianity that early. And uh, I've quoted some of it to you before. But this is how this person who's defending and explaining Christianity to this other person sort of writes this. He says, they share their table, but not their bed with all. It was a radical distinction from everyone in culture, even at that time. They share their table, but they don't share their bed with all. There's a private part to their life, but there's an open community part to their life. And that leads me to This text here, remember this text here, what we learned in the first part of community? You've got this really tight, intimate, brotherly love going on, but then you also have this uh, willingness to be open to strangers. So just think about this for a second. Um, You have this intimacy with community in verse one, and then in verse two and three, you have this sort of open where they're open to strangers, and they care for the needy. And then he comes right back to marriage. Honored among all. There's the open community piece. And then the marriage bed, which is the intimacy piece. He said, What's going on here? Here's the thing about what it means to come to Christ. What does it mean to come to Christ? What is that fire actually doing? It's transforming me. It's changing the way I see everything. Not just the open community, but it teaches me how to be intimate and when, and how to be open and when. When am I to be private? And when am I to be open in community? And your hearts, when the gospel comes into your life, it expands your heart and it purifies it at the same time. You know when to be open and you know when to shut down. Isn't that a powerful thing? You know what would happen in our our community and churches if we could do both of these the way God intended them to be? It takes a real selfless person to keep sex in that bedroom with you and your spouse only. But then to be open when it's time to be open, to care for people, to serve people, to know when to be private, when to be intimate, when to be open, when to be social, and when to be connected to community. Those those are the kinds of dynamics. Those are the kind of tensions that are put together where there's privacy and community. It's a powerful scene. Some years ago, I was up here preaching and there was a couple going through divorce. They were in the process. They were still in the same home together, but they were going through divorce. We were trying to help them through this process. It was very difficult and painful. They would show up and sit opposite. And I'm seeing the two of them sitting in separate places. And then one Sunday, while he's still living at home, and the divorce isn't final, he shows up with another woman, sits four rows behind his wife. And I'm up here preaching. It was the hardest preaching day I've ever had in my whole life, trying to imagine that somehow he would feel comfortable in this community doing that. To this day, hardest Sunday I've ever preached. Of course, that led to more stuff after. All I'm saying is, That's a real misunderstanding of a lot of things. That's a heart that's a little bit out of whack when it comes to how do I fit into a community? When am I supposed to be open and when am I supposed to be private? What does my life look like? From a purity standpoint. This is an incredibly significant text about how we handle ourselves. with our spouses and with each other. So, let's just look at this piece right here for just a second. Honor marriage. Um, the word honor in this context in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews is as sacred a text as you can imagine. It's talking about Christ and the sanctuary and the tabernacle and sinlessness and and what holiness is and purity. And I mean, it's like you can feel it when you're reading. Read chapter 7 through 10 and you, you'll just be amazed. Um, so it's, it's something that's precious and pure and valuable and beautiful. And it's marriage. And I'm not going to go into all of this, but I do want to say at least this. That it's defined by Genesis 1 and 2. That's how all of the New Testament treats sexual issues. All go back to Genesis 1 and 2. So you define marriage based on that. And in a series called Design, some few years back, I spent lots of talks dealing with this. I won't eat, it was a four and a half month series on this topic of marriage and all that kind of stuff and gender, and uh, we sort of created the building blocks of humanity, and it looked like this in the series. If you go to Genesis 1 and 2, you'll see in this series that we, we talked about who God was, why he made male and female, and then how he brought them together in marriage, and then how sex unified them in a, in a, in a certain way. Now, I'm not going to go through all that, because if I got into that, I, we would spend five weeks on that. It's out there for you. But what we said was you can't you can't mess with any of these without violating the rest of them. You you will undermine and violate any one of these if you mess with if you, if you. If you change gender, um you'll mess with the whole picture. So we're talking about God creating marriage. We're talking about a male and a female together forever. That's what we're talking about. That's out of Genesis 1 and 2. We have no other way to define marriage in our Bibles. So that's what he's talking about. God was, in, God created in his image. God was, is diverse and unified. Just read Genesis. You'll see the contrast. Light and darkness. Land and water. There's complementary pieces all the way through, and at the pinnacle of creation, he creates male and female, complementary. He actually pulls the woman from the man, and then in sex, they come back together again. It's a complementary unity. You can't mess with it. It's the picture and the bonding effect that not only unites the sexes, creates life, but also protects the family and society. And to mess with any of the pieces is to violate the design and the designer, and there's just no way around it. And physical intimacy is the last part of the process. You can't change them outside of their roles either. you got to keep them together. Um, this is consistently true throughout all the scriptures. They always put sex in that spot everywhere in the New Testament. So you can read 1 Corinthians 7 about marital sex. You can read Matthew 19 about how do you know you've committed adult? How do you know you've even committed sexual sin? Define, you, you look at the marriage. The marriage defines it. Proverbs 5, drink water from your own cistern. Rather, your, your own spouse, Song of Solomon. Don't awaken or arouse love until the time is right, the Song of Solomon says. And then you got Luke 20. This is probably the pinnacle piece that puts sex right here. Nestled inside the sacred marriage. When they ask Jesus, do you remember? Hey, uh, we got a woman over here who, uh, let's say she's been married seven times and they all died and went to heaven. When she gets to heaven, who's, which one's gonna be her husband? Remember that little trick question? I don't think it's that absurd. My nana was married seven times. That's right, and they all died, and we don't ask questions. And at the end of her life, when she was single, I led her to Christ. When she had no more of those guys in her life. And I, this wouldn't be a dilemma for her, because I know some of them, none of them got there. She's going to get there all by herself. It's not going to be a dilemma. But remember what Jesus says uh, to the smarty pants? There's no marriage there. That's when he makes the comment you'll be like angels, sexless. So why isn't there sex in heaven? Because there's no what? Marriage. Listen, on all your Bible, there's 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 no marriage, there's no sex. That's pretty countercultural. So I read this. Let me. Let me. I'll I'll get. I'm almost. I'm just about done here. But let me say a couple more things because the second part of this verse, we're going to wait till next week. I I know you're waiting for the. What's he going to say about the bed? Hey, hold on, hold on to your horses. (laughs) Uh, But I read this book, and I'll. I'll I'll wrap this up in just a couple minutes. Um, So I read this book by uh, Roger Scruton. I'd never heard of him before. He's a, a modern day philosopher. Uh, hardest book I've ever read almost 400 pages of, it's called Sexual Desire, A Philosophical Investigation. I will tell you that 85% of that book just went right over my head. But I read every painstaking line. It was incredibly hard. I mean, insane. So here's what he did. He takes on the idea that sex, he takes on the idea that sex is a sort of a natural act or desire. Sort of, you know, That it's animalistic and that it has no built in limits. Uh, So he argues philosophically that sexual morality cannot be separated from the sexual act without destroying the, 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 the distinct character of sex in us as humans as persons and not animals. It's profound. And he argues that you don't... This is his argument. You don't need God to see that sexual desire uh, is not morally neutral. And because of that, he says, the only rightful place for it to exist is in marriage. He says it intrinsically demands institutional conditions. It's inherently nuptial, he writes. Now I think the Me Too generation is making God's point. The hashtag Me Too generation is making God's point on, on this. Um, you never just have sex. Something more of our existence as sexual beings Uh, is affected in it. And the damage is more than just the violent part. So in light of the damage that sex can do when it's wrongly used, can't we see that sex is far more meaningful and can never be casual you'd think we would be more conscious of the virtues of sex in light of the vices that we see in it. If it can go that low, how high must it go? The hashtag me to community, this whole world should tell us something about sex, not just men. It should tell us something about sex, not just men. It should tell us something about ourselves. That we have devalued it. Because we're persons, and as persons, we can't ever just have casual sex. That's why you literally affect the sexual existence of a person when you treat them that way with So you know we we use sex for everything. We've completely taken it out of the bedroom. In our culture, and we will literally put it anywhere. We've and our culture is so messed up on this. We don't see the damage we're doing when we treat it like a like like a just simple desire, an animalistic desire, like hunger. We compare sex to eating everywhere. I remember one of the first commercials I ever saw was it was a subway commercial. A car is parked in a vacant field with just the moonlight giving you enough to see that the windows are fogged up in this car and it's shaking and there's no way not to assume two people are in the backseat having sex. And when the camera comes into the car, there are two people in the backseat eating subway sandwiches. I want you to hear something. Cuz so I thought it was profound. In this book on about page 82 when my brain was beginning to melt. This is what he writes about trying to compare the desire for sex to the desire for as hunger and hunger. It says the relationship between desire and hunger it might be argued the sexual desire gains its in- don't mind some of his words you'll get the end okay this uh, he says it might be argued that sexual desire gains its individualizing intentionality from the fact that that it has a personal object different than a sandwich obviously it's simply a feature of persons that they demand a certain kind of treatment you can't Uh, What distinguishes desire from hunger, in other words, the respect, it's simply a feature of persons that they demand a certain kind of treatment. The respect which forbids us to look on them as, as replaceable by another. What distinguishes desire from hunger is therefore not the structure of the impulse itself, but an independent feature of these entities to which it is directed. Suppose that people were the only edible things. This is the parable that I thought was interesting. You got to pay attention now. Forget everything else I just said because it won't matter. You're like, well, I don't know what he just said. Me neither. No idea. But this I got, and that's why I kept reading the book because every, you know, 50 pages, I go, oh, I got something. He literally says, so suppose that people were the only edible things and suppose that they felt no pain upon being eaten and we were reconstituted at once. If he bit my hand off, pretty soon my hand would be right back. I'm like, okay, he's got me now. He says, how many formalities and apologies would now be required in the satisfaction of hunger? You're just walking around eating people's hands. Yeah, hey, I see something really good there. And you just grab a person and start eating them. How many apologies would, would there be in society? People would would have to conceal their appetite and learn not to presume upon the consent of those whom they surveyed with famished glances. It would become a terrible crime to partake of a meal without the meal's consent. Perhaps in the end, he says, marriage might be considered as the only decent solution to another otherwise intolerable moral predicament. If we were food, he'd say, you'd still need marriage because you can't go around eating people. Oh man, it was so powerful. I, I, I Clearly, you didn't care about that at all. <laughs> I thought it was amazing. I thought it was amazing. Okay, now, listen. Now, um, let's see. Where are we? I'm going to tell you what, we're going to stop right there. I'm 10 minutes over. So here's the deal. Um, let that sink in. <laughs> Not that last thing. <laughs> That'll never sink in. Um, and next week, uh, we'll look at the marriage bed. Father, we thank you for your word, how powerful it is, what it says to us. And many of us, even now, even though some of the more... Uh, even more potent realities of this verse we haven't even heard yet. We can, we're already convicted. Are we honoring marriage as a body? Do people feel the heat of honoring that? Do we feel that when we're together? I pray for that for this community.